Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. Welcome. I am Nick Charles, partner at Notation Capital. I am Alex Lyons, partner at Notation Capital. And we are uh, fortunate to have Mr. Winter Mead join us today. Uh, he's a vice president at Sapphire Ventures, uh, spent some time as an investor at Hall Capital, and, uh, and very importantly, is the founder of Mead and Mead Company, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, Winter, excited to have you. Good to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background as, a, as, as an LP. You know, studied government and economics as an undergrad, and then I went to start a PhD program at, at Oxford. Um, shortly thereafter, moved out to the Valley in, in late 2009 and actually worked at a... a what were you studying at Oxford? Management science. Okay, wow. So a lot of management theory and, and innovation uh, and sort of networks and, and different, just different systems uh, within management. And then sort of moved out to, you know, the Bay Area in, in late 2009 uh, and worked at a t- couple of tech companies, actually. So, yeah, okay. So the dissertation at Oxford, I, I wrote around, uh, you know, digital models and, and how, how the movie industry was changing, you know, moving more towards digital versus, you know, former forms. And so I wanted to work at a, a tech company that, you know, was in line with with what I was writing about um, for for over a year, and ended up working at a an, an online interactive video startup uh, for a little over a year. Um, I had been till that point sort of you know looking to get into finance, and so an opportunity arose to join Hall Capital um, in early 2011, and so that's when I I made the switch over and worked on the private equity and venture capital team there for three and a half plus years. And Hall, Hall Capital, tell us a little bit about Hall Capital. It's a it's a fund of funds. So Hall Capital is a multifamily office that manages capital for high net worth clients and endowments right. and foundations. It's founded by Katie Hall, who is an amazing woman uh, in 1994 and has scaled, you know, it's based in San Francisco, it's scaled to be 29 billion dollars wow. of assets okay. under management. So that's like a almost like a large endowment. Across, yeah, it's very much run um, similar to an endowment model. And and Katie actually sits on the board at, at uh, Princeton's endowment. Okay. So I think there's a lot of influence there that's uh, played into how we think about or how Hall thinks about investing. In a sense that like very long time horizons, I assume, investing in all sorts of different stuff, not just venture capital, but private equity and public stocks and real estate and yeah. So, so the 
the decision-making process there is across various groups, right? So being on the private equity and venture capital team, you're not only thinking about a private equity or venture capital investment, you're thinking about that investment relative to other asset classes. So whether you're making a decision to invest in a hedge fund or a public equity firm or you know, real assets fund, you're, you're weighing all of those potential allocations and seeing what's the best relative decision across those, those various investment opportunities. And so it's an interesting exercise because it opens up your purview beyond the scope of just private equity and venture capital to say, you know, what is the best investment overall? And I think applying that lens to investing is actually pretty, pretty interesting. And, um, and, and it's a, and it's a good way to think, you know, relatively about various decisions. You were, you were working at a startup, you joined Hall Capital. Um, I assume not knowing all that much about and being an investor in venture capital funds. Um, how did you, how did you start? Like, how did you learn? And do you think your, uh, do you think your time working at a technology startup helped you get up to speed, even though it was a finance job, so to speak? Yeah. So, so working, you know, roughly as a product manager is a very early stage startup, but as a product manager at a tech company definitely helped with getting, you know, a deep immersion into the technology landscape is very helpful especially when at Hall I was looking at venture capital funds to make investments. Hall, for being, for being uh, you know, a relatively big shop and like I said, looking across multiple asset classes, was fairly progressive in getting involved in the institutionalization of seed investing mm-hmm. you know, in the 2006-2007 timeframe. So they made a few investments into venture funds you know, years before other people were really talking about it as an asset class and before it, before it had become what it is today. Into new, new emerging into, managers, into new managers new funds that yeah. hadn't been around for 20 years or whatever. Yeah, right? I'm not, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, they, some top tier names that they had gotten involved with um, early on. And so the, they, they called it relatively early and they said, yes, this thesis makes sense. You know, we understand the landscape is changing. And so being at Hall was actually good exposure to understanding, you know, innovation within venture capital and and where sort of that world was moving. And um, again, having, you know, a relatively higher allocation to the venture asset, asset class and seeing some of these firms and how they were evolving was definitely important in my my growth and how I wanted to think about, you know, transitioning to my next role at yep. Sapphire Ventures. So you joined, you've been at Sapphire Ventures now for two years, three Just years? A little under two. So I joined in <laughs> August right, You're almost two years old. Um, uh, tell us about joining Sapphire and, and why you joined Sapphire from Hall. And So um, I joined Sapphire Ventures in, in, in 2014. They had been, they started the fund in, in 2012. They had the final close on 406 million in 2013. And so when I joined, I realized that it was a a very young platform and somewhat of a greenfield opportunity to get involved early and help build out an interesting, great brand. So my role has been, you know, helping further that goal. Um, 
that means a couple of things. One, it means you know trying to you know fundamentally execute on a strategy, which is partnering with the best venture capital firms um, and teams um, and investors. That's what we want to do. Um, and does that mean building relationships with existing firms that are already in market that might be on fund two, four, six, whatever? Or does that mean trying to seek out new funds that might just be getting going? Um, so it's both. Right. I mean, it's both, uh, it's both emerging managers, it's established managers. You know, for us as a you know, relatively younger brand in the market, um, and uh, acting as a limited partner that a lot of people, you know, haven't heard of. You know, we've been educating the market to a certain extent of, of who we are and and why we're different and and what makes us compelling as a potential limited partner. And again, you know, we do a lot of internal diligence on different landscapes and different teams, and you know, are looking to be partners with the greatest VCs and whether that's, you know, first time fund or, you know, manager that's on, you know, fund 10 plus doesn't, doesn't matter to me. And I don't think it matters to Sapphire. It's just a matter of, right. you know, f- figuring out, you know, who is going, who is super passionate about, you know, investing in awesome companies and, you know, aligning ourselves with, with those people. How do you, f- how do you figure that out? So there are, hundreds of particularly new funds in the last five, seven years. Hundreds, yeah. Hundreds, right? Yeah. Yeah, so. I feel like I've met with over 700 funds wow. since, I, since I joined in August 2014. All focused wow. on what you define as early stage, which is seed and some A. All of them in venture capital, not, not only seed and series A focused. Okay. And across. Sapphire, you have met with seven that can hundred be, funds. So that could be a Sapphire. phone call or a right. meeting in person or even a deck that we can quickly realize that, you know, it's it's out of scope. Now, I, I don't know how that compares to other limited partners. I would say because we exclusively focus on venture capital, we probably see a higher number of, of inbound um, for, you know, venture capital <laughs> investment opportunities and other than other limited partners that are that have a wider scope and are focusing and where, on. Where do you see most of that through other VCs that you work with? From yeah, I mean the founders. The, how do you even? So it can about? be again, like it's if you if you go to events, if you go to conferences, if you have already been operating in the space, if people know you're out there and you you have a fund, there's going to be inbound. So you know we or have people will email you just. Lots, right. lots of emails, yeah, right. cold emails, you know, sometimes to info at sapphireventures.com, right. you know, right. type of emails. Um, I would say those tend to be... And you'll respond to those. Those, I, I will try to respond yep. to all of those. Yep. Some of them are just completely out of scope yep. where they just don't understand what we're doing. And so um, I have been remiss to respond right. to some right. of those. Right. But yeah, I will respond to... Um, anything that that comes in and and we try to respond very promptly uh, if it's interesting we try to engage and have you know a phone call to understand the opportunity a little bit more so let's say it's within your broad 
investment parameter. So early stage venture firm in uh, US, Europe, Israel. That's correct, yeah. Within those constraints, uh, what are some of the things that um, you look for that will uh, where where you want to spend more time with a with a VC or or maybe even ultimately invest? Yeah, so you have to have some criteria. You have to have some lens to to sort of get through that initial part of the the diligence. And now we've we've made we've made an uh, you know established a number of partnerships now with with early stage funds. You know when when something first first comes in the door. For for me, again, it's looking at fundamentally the team, understanding, you know, who are these people? Am I connected to them already? You know, can I easily reference them to understand like what they've been doing? Um, most most you know backgrounds of people are are fairly well known, right? And you know, with with a number of different ways to you know back channel reference or having operated in the space now for you know, five plus years, you know, you already have a sense of, you know, who's who in the industry. And so a lot of times, like when, when you see a new opportunity, it could be a spin out from an established firm that you already know. Maybe it's a, you know, younger partner I've already been tracking and, and seen and, and maybe even know personally. Um, it could be, you know, a warm reference from someone that, you know, I trust and, and I want to sort of understand, you know, their perspective a little bit more, and maybe maybe they see something. So, if that comes in as an email introduction, I'm definitely going to take, you know, a phone call to to learn about the person a little bit more. Um, understanding internally, sort of our own portfolio allocation and where we may have a gap where we want to fill with with uh, you know an opportunity. I mean, we're always doing active work on different spaces geographically and maybe we have you know various theses depending on the actual location for example you know you know notations case having a thesis around pre-seed or you know with some seed managers that we've invested in in Europe having a specific thesis on on the region or the strategy they're addressing and so when we see an opportunity again that that sort of is in is in line with you know what we've been doing internally as research um, we can be we can be more proactive and we can understand the opportunity a bit better right. before it comes in the door versus always being reactive, right? It's our goal as well to sort of you know flip that model on its head. We do get a lot of inbound, but sometimes you know the the reason we don't engage fully is because we are doing a lot of internal work and trying to be more proactive about the partnerships we want to make and we we try to get to that list of managers that you know we'd like to like to work with and believe have been you know successful um, in the past. And, and so you have a secret list. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you know? I was gonna. I was. I was. I was thinking. I was. You know, there are examples of uh, founders kind of spinning out of uh, technology companies. And very quickly raising venture capital from maybe folks that they've had previous relationships with. It's almost like for certain people, there's like venture capital almost waiting for them to go build a thing. Are there 
Are there certain partners at funds or junior partners at funds or uh, mid-level folks where you've maybe built a relationship over a really long time where if they were to go do their own thing or start their own firm, like there would be LP capital waiting for them. It might be Sapphire Ventures capital, might might not, but there's LP capital like waiting for them to start their own firm. Yeah, I think that's true to a certain extent. Um, my tweet storm a couple days ago was about like what what was it what were the type of firms that raised in Q1, and I think the type of firm that raised in Q1 is indicative of you know types of first time funds that are able to raise in any market, right? And like mm-hmm. you said, it it could be you know a very talented product manager at a at a big technology company or a you know founder that was successful, you know, and, and sold by M&A into a big technology company is now spinning out and thinking about transitioning into venture capital. Maybe they already have their own angel portfolio. And so there is a track record. There's data there to look at. They've been building relationships you know, in the, in the ecosystem for a long period of time. People know who they are. They know, you know what their access is. And so, yeah, there, there's definitely going to be a conversation there with limited partners. I would say there isn't capital necessarily waiting for them. It's, it's not like limited partners have a, a special reserve or an allocation for people. But, you know, if organically that person decides to, you know, go out on her own or, you know, work with another partner and, you know, establish a team and approaches a limited partner for capital, um, again, like that, that conversation is going to happen. You know, sometimes, you know, in Sapphire Ventures case, you know, we started as a corporate VC and then spun out in 2011 and are now an independent venture capital firm. So, I mean, that's another route. Like you could, there, there are firms, first time funds, right. you know, they start, they were sort of captive within a corporate and, and then they, they've spun out. Um, you have, like you're saying, principles at, at established managers you know, that are very active, have been responsible for sourcing great investments at those firms. And then, you know, they're willing to, they, they feel like they have the skill set, you know, and, and the network and they're willing to branch out on their own. Um, so all of those are compelling opportunities, right? right? And, and th- those are opportunities that we want to see. And those are people we want to talk to. And um, we have made investments into those types of opportunities. In, in terms of the, the data, I mean, I know that, um, you know, Sapphire does a lot of quantitative analysis when, during the diligence process, um, and you're particularly strong on, on the quantitative side. Uh, for, for some of these early funds or, or even first-time funds, how, what, what role can, can the quantitative analysis play in the diligence process when, you know, maybe they don't have an angel portfolio or they're, you know, maybe they're on fund two, but fund one is only a couple years old and, and it's, it's, it's difficult to take a lot from, from the data that's there. How do you, what are there, are there other quantitative measures that are important when it's super early and there's not a lot of data to show, or do you just lean more, more heavily on the sort of qualitative and, and, and personal diligence? For us, in, in investing in in a partnership that has that has a track record is very important. That could be an angel track record. It could be a track record at you know prior VC firm. 
any data that we can get during the initial diligence process when we're underwriting the first fund that we're going to be involved with um, is very important. Again, it's it's also it's not only the data we're getting from that firm; it's other data that applies to you know the specific market. You know, what is what does the New York ecosystem look like? What's the data we have from other firms that that we can use? You know, as benchmarks for you know this this new investment. And that's in terms of you know exits in the ecosystem and yeah. what the values of those companies ultimately are and stuff like that. What are the commitments over time to a particular ecosystem? What what are what do the Kagers look like for for investments over time? Who do we already know? Yeah, the qualitative aspect of how can we how can we reference with people we already know in that ecosystem to get a better sense of the opportunity? And you know that's both on list references, you know, um, and also off list references, right? I, I'd say if there's not a lot of data, it's just hard to it's hard to underwrite an investment, right? Um, in, into a fund. So you really have to rely on the relationship you've built during the diligence process you know, or the fundraising process w- with that team, or you're relying on very strong relationships you already have with other people in that ecosystem that know that team very well. And, and you, can, you can rely on them for, for diligence. What, what you don't want to get into is you know, completely relying on just the word of other people and not having your own opinion on, on the team and the fun and the opportunity, you know, that, that you're looking at. So for us, you know, data, data is very important. Like if we get data, we're going to look at it and we're going to look at it in a number of different ways. And I think that's important, but yeah, I mean, in some early stage funds, there isn't much data. So it comes down to, you know, pattern recognition, you know, building that relationship with the team and ultimately, Making a strong judgment call on what you think is a, a good investment opportunity. I, uh, I asked Beezer this question. I've asked a, a bunch of people because I'm just curious how people think about it. But how do you bring a rigorous approach to evaluating qualitative information? So, a, num- a number of different ways. I'm, I mean, I think. From, from a qualitative assessment, I actually think you can apply a quantitative, quantitative approach. So, you know, how many times does a certain word come up? Or, you know, you're looking for pattern recognition and reference calls. Like for, for a recent, for a recent uh, fund, you know, that we're looking at, I've probably done 45 reference calls so far. So wow. far. And that's um, amongst and other VCs in the ecosystem, founders that they've worked with, folks like that? Other limited partners, other exactly. LPs, right. So, so you can start to see, you know, the same word pop up a, a number of times, right? Or the same example pop up, um, or the same personality trait, right? And and so you're you're sort of adding those things up. It's quasi quantitative, right? It's not like heavy data crunching, but it right. but it's a way to you know apply a rigorous qualitative approach to talking with a lot of people. And triangulating that information to really understand, you know, the real story behind behind an event. Um, how much? How much do you when you're going through, let's say, forty five diligence calls? How do you try to bring an unbiased view to the forty third call? Like after after having so much information from the so, first forty. 
So sometimes, sometimes it makes sense to wait, I think, because what you don't want to do is waste people's time if you already have the information. Right. When do you have enough information? You know, like how do you decide between call 40 and 48? I mean, we have the same question when we're doing reference calls too. So when, when, I, have, when I have no more outstanding questions, so I think throughout, when I do reference calls, throughout the process of doing reference calls, the questions tend to change or I hone in on specific questions, right? If, if I'm very familiar with the team, I typically know which diligence questions I want to ask specifically. If I'm less familiar with the team, but I think an opportunity is interesting to continue doing work on it, I want to call people and, and have a more general conversation. And then after having a couple of general conversations, I typically will hone in on what, what is potentially an issue that I should you know, dig a little deeper on. And so then the questions become, I think, more specific. So the calls can almost become shorter over time because I'm moving through my diligence process and I'm having more targeted, um, targeted questions. And, and I think, you know, as we have multiple meetings throughout the course of a, a diligence process. So, you know, on our, from our first meeting to our fourth meeting, you know, on, on the same opportunity, I, th- I think the questions change. And again, the, the questions we're trying to answer um, change. And so it's who have we talked to? Who haven't we talked to? Can we get those answers from people we haven't yet talked to? And it may even be going back to someone we've already talked to just to get clarification on, on a point. Um, what you don't want to do is feel uncomfortable with underwriting any of the risks what you do want to do is identify all the risks in a potential investment and you know talk about them and, and become comfortable with them so you eventually can make you know the investment it's interesting because we we've spoken to a few investors that have said that all of their best investments made them deeply uncomfortable so you're getting comfortable with a, a risk a risk is Fundamentally, something that's probably going to make you right, uncomfortable, right, but right, right. you want to you want to understand it. To you, you just want to you want to understand it. Maybe maybe yeah. comfortable isn't isn't the right word then. Yeah. Are you an investor in any of the same funds today at Sapphire that you were at Hall? Yes. Yes. Is is that uncommon in the in the LP world? You know, in the VC world, um, I think it's not. It's fairly common to to work with similar founders for for investors to work with similar founders, regardless of if they've changed firms or not. Yeah. Um, is that is that more difficult in the LP world just because the the relationships and time horizons are are much much longer and and there's less frequent change? I don't. I have brought relationships from Hall to Sapphire Ventures. I do think sometimes it can come down to a matter of, of allocation. If you're investing in an oversubscribed seed stage, early stage focus fund that has capped the amount of capital they're going to raise time and time again, they already have an established LP base. For them to let Sapphire Ventures in would mean that there has to be a circumstance where another limited partner either gets downsized or leaves. So that could happen. But again, it's only been you know, right. less than two years. So a lot of the funds haven't even come back to market yet. As a, as a, as a VP at Sapphire or a similar type of um, investment fund, 
how do you how do you measure your own performance? It's tough. Per- personally, like I assume in the same way that newer VCs want to build a track record, you know, you're building your own track record now at Sapphire. How do you measure that? It's it's tough, right? I'm it's really tough to measure the performance of a limited partner. Um, I mean, I'd say some have to be in the ecosystem for 10 or 15 years before right. people start referring to them as successful as limited partners. I would say the time horizon is less for a venture capital capitalist. Um, a venture capitalist can invest in a great company and that company can be realized relatively quickly. When you're investing into a portfolio, that portfolio is going to take longer to mature. So for me to show that I have a great track record or a good track record or poor track record is just going to take is going to take time. Um, is, it way- hit, is it hits based in the same way VC is? Like, you know, uh, a VC will, yes, they'll build an overall track record over time, but really the best thing they can do is find and invest in a company that becomes huge. And typically they're often associated with that company then for a really long time. Our LP, is it similar in the LP ecosystem where, you know, you have to, although yes, overall performance over 10, 15 years is important. It's really about finding that one great firm or fund before anybody else did. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's two, there's two sides, right? Or, or there's, there's two strategies. It's, it's one, can you call managers early? Can you partner with the teams that are going to take off and build great firms? If that's the strategy, then how can I be helpful, right? Like how can I bring the resources of Sapphire Ventures and myself to helping that team be really successful, right? So because if, then you'll be the LP with, known as with that, spotting that team early. With spotting in. that team and also, you know, helping that team in what, whatever way I can, right? right? I'm, I'm not going to be the one responsible for their success, but, you know, I can be an open playbook and anything or any questions they may have, like they should feel comfortable coming to me as a limited partner and, and asking those questions. Yep. You know, even if even if I'm not or Sapphire Ventures is not a member of the the advisory committee. Right. So for me, you know, I, I take it very seriously. Like if I'm gonna make a commitment of someone else's money and you're acting as a fiduciary, like I feel part of the responsibility as a fiduciary is is being receptive to questions and helping that that team scale and be successful. The other approach is Again, you have more data behind some of the more established firms. It's also looking to make investments in teams and firms that already have big brands, that already have great track records. So I think those are those are the two strategies. And I think you can, as a limited partner, be successful with doing one or the other strategy or doing both of those strategies, right? By partnering every year with new teams that you're really excited about and you think are going to get access and are going to be the next generation of awesome VCs or by building relationships with established firms and then getting access there and partnering with uh, with those firms as well. I don't think one or the other is necessarily better, um, but I think over time that's how a limited partner is going to be judged on their success is by what access they have to 
the best managers right. that are out there. Right. Yeah, I think you know one of the questions that comes up a lot is is whether whether investors can add value and how they add value. Um, how do you think you can uh, from the Sapphire side, which is which is really just a question about how how do you work with GPs on a day to day or week to week or month to month basis. So we're we're sitting here in the Bloomberg office on the 22nd floor, and Sapphire Ventures is hosting a next generation tech stack summit. So you know, there's dozens of people walking around you know, this this office right now, which is unusual for limited partners. Yeah. Which is unusual Very, for limited partners, yeah. right? So a number of the companies that are here are companies that are in our portfolio. You know, they're investments made by our GPs. So I think, I think that's somewhat different. Um, I don't know if Yale would necessarily do something like this um, or be able to get you know, access to an ecosystem of, of everyone that's you know, looking at the DevOps microservices space right. um, and, and put them all in the same room. So that that's something we can offer, right? Is is access to, you know, that platform team that that we have. Um, we, you know, we spun out of SAP in 2011. We have a six-person market development team that helps with business development and recruiting and putting on events like this, which I think is also unique in being able to offer, you know, the companies of our GPs access to to that platform um, and, and that's something we try to really bring to bear to the relationship as well it's it's also being you know of just a sounding box um, a sounding board uh, to to these GPS and you know being open if, if they have questions to reach out you know again at sapphire ventures we meet with a lot of different venture capital firms we see a lot of different strategies we hear a lot of different stories and we want to be able to you know help our managers understand the relative pace of change that's going on in the industry and and to help them you know understand better you know where they fit into the ecosystem and i think we try to offer that very informed perspective to to the gps that that we partner with yeah yeah i mean we we often Alex and myself talk about uh, being a sounding board for founders, obviously, and um, you know we we occasionally take board seats. We don't often take board seats, and and so what that allows us to be able to do is be the call before the board. And I think we've we've um, we've always enjoyed that role with founders. It's a very um, it's a very what feels like an honest open relationship. What are the ways in which you try to build that kind of like communication um, avenue and level of trust with the with the VCs that you work with? Yeah, I mean the first the first point is just being an open book and and having people know that they can call me and and have that trusted conversation. Practically, it means you know meeting with them in person, getting coffees, you know responding quickly to their emails, going to annual meetings, um, you know, going to quarterly meetings, whatever it may be, um, going to some of their events if, if the GPs are hosting events, showing up at their events and supporting them in that way. Um, again, you know, 
how do you build a relationship in general? Yeah, right. right? It has it has to be FaceTime, has to be phone time. Um, you have to be responsive to questions, and I think a lot of it has to do with follow up. Um, it's probably a big issue with follow up in the industry in general, where what I don't want to do is say I'm going to do something, then don't do it, right? That just pains me. Like my inbox is my to-do list yep. most of the time. And there's always a number of emails sitting there that I'm always trying to whittle through. And uh, That sounds and, exhausting. We know that well. <laughs> and, <laughs> and a lot of them are from managers, right? There's projects that you know I have to work on. Now I can think of 10 projects for the GPs that you know, are red flagged in my, in my outlook that I'm going to work on over the next few weeks and get them back to different GPs. And hopefully over time, they, it builds up trust when I can respond to some of their in, inquiries in, in a hopefully relatively informed way so that they're willing to come back to me and ask questions, right? If, if I'm open to their, to their questions, but I don't provide good answers, then I wouldn't want to ask myself another question, right? right? I, I wouldn't want to go back to me. So it's, it's not only like being that open book, but it's being actually helpful. Um, and yeah, that sometimes does take a little bit extra effort and one more step at the end of the day, but um, hopefully that pays off in the long run. How valuable is it to, um, to hear bad news from, from GPs that you work Very with? Very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Being as transparent as possible is is very valuable, especially for having and building a trusted relationship over time. What, what form does that usually take? Like how do, I mean, we, we do, uh, we try to do uh, an investor update for our investors every six weeks or so. We do it, um, we just send an email basically. What, what are the ways in which most of the, uh, most of your GPs regularly communicate with you? Do they just pick so up one every week? So or? updates are different than bad news. An update can be an email. An update can be a quarterly phone call. Bad news I define as something very different. You know, a partner just left or right. something. Right, right. I don't want to wait for the quarterly update and get it in an email Right. at the end of the email <laughs> what just happened right by the way half the firm just walked out the door right it would be much better it'd be much better to have a personal phone call immediately after that happens and ideally you have two adults talking to each other right and you can work through the situation and understand what the implications of whatever it may be are um it, it, it needs to be it needs to be a, a phone call if you're not in the immediate vicinity or you know setting up setting up an in-person meeting to, to talk about something uh, I think with you know with with our with the managers that we're partnered with we try to you know hold those close relationships so hopefully we hear a lot of the information when we don't hear the information and we find out about it later on um, you know it's it's just just means that you know we should try to do a better job of of being you know, a better component in that relationship, and and hopefully over time, people will people will sort of you know come to us and 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 uh, again use use us as that that sounding board. Yeah. So we only have a few minutes left. Can you tell us about Mead and Mead? 
company. That's what it's called, correct? Mead and Mead. Yes, Mead and Mead. So I grew up on a farm in Connecticut, Massachusetts. One of the products that was made on the farm was maple syrup. And Mead and Mead is my business that I co-founded with my sister about five years ago. And it, so this is important because you you are you are an entrepreneur as well, which you failed to mention at the beginning of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes, yeah, so so I love doing it, um, and it, it's a very it's a very fun fun project. So yeah, it's it's a effectively a maple syrup company. Um, but you you can't actually buy it online, right? You have to go to a store, or you have to know. Winter meat, personally. <laughs> yeah. I do so in addition, in addition sure. to inbound emails. <laughs> from What is your roadmap in terms of features of making it available online so I can just buy it? <laughs> no, it is online. <laughs> it's, you have a site, but I couldn't buy it there. It's at meadandmeads.com. It's, it's available. Mead and mead. Meadandmeads.com. Meadandmeads.com. You can buy winter meads, maple <laughs> syrup. Yeah, there's the plug. Got it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, you better increase production after this uh, after this podcast <laughs> is released. Um, thank you so much for for doing this with us, and um, uh, yeah, we really we really appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Alex. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank Silicon Valley Bank for sponsoring season two of Origins. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.